talking last week, um, I think we covered some 30 verses last week, and so I'm paying you back a double portion of, of all that coverage that we had. I think we're going to be in these six um, two weeks, so we're going to slow the roll just a, just a hair, uh, maybe. I, I'm still considering. Um, I had so much left over and, and a different way to look at this text that I felt was really important, but it became kind of two separate uh, uh, points of attack. Um, so perhaps as the Lord would lead, we'll be back here again or we'll progress. We'll see what He has for us. But there is something of certain importance that I did want to touch on this morning coming out of um, these first six verses. And what you have heard read to you now is as you see the Lord is giving the apostles here, uh, in, a, in a sense, a foretaste of their future ministry. Um, their future ministry is covered by Luke as well. Uh, in the book of Acts. So, where in here it is much more restrictive, but in Acts, you see after the great commission of Matthew 28 as he gives to the church, you see the book of Acts unfold to tell the story of that great commission. That's, that's how we read Acts. It, it's, it's functionally showing the efforts of the great commission. By the close of Acts, you're, you're in this idea that the gospel is going at that point in time, as you would consider to the ends of the earth. So, here, however, it's important as we look at this text in, in, in comparison to the Great Commission and then the missionary enterprise of the book of Acts, we look at this text appropriately in its more restrictive context. That is, Jesus' instructions here and this is really important for us to note, Jesus' instructions here to the evangelistic enterprise with the apostles is restricted here to a particular time and a particular place. So, these instructions of what we read here are deeply tethered and tied to an anchor point of that time and that place. Again, consider how what the Lord's instructions here, or, or, or how the Lord's instructions here are particularized in time. I note for you, just by way of introduction, that Jesus gives these instructions, as you see, to the apostles and expressly not to the rest of the church. So again, if you're looking at this text... Consider it once again in light of the Great Commission. Unfortunately, throughout church history, and, and perhaps even still yet in certain evangelical pockets um, or the broader consideration of the church, bad, bad advice has been provided to certain missionary endeavors and missionary works that they should not receive support that they should not receive gifts and funding from the church, but rather truly if they are indeed called as a missionary, they should, hey, take no staff, take no bag, take no bread, and take no money. That, that unfortunately has been leveraged to missionary enterprise. But we must recognize that would be a hurtful endeavor to the missionary efforts that Christ has given and has called the church to execute. And it's a poor handling of his text. Again, how? It's particularized to a point in time as evidenced in that Christ has never repeated these instructions to the church. Consider also 
how this text is particularized in place. I note for you that Jesus sends the apostles only to the villages of Palestine among the Jewish people. That's important here. Whether we say, well, as a missionary, we shouldn't support foreign missions. We shouldn't support local missions. Rather, they should take no money. They should take no knapsack. They should take no staff. They should live off the land. And as it's easy to say to everyone but ourselves, live by faith. But rather, we see, whoa, 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 whoa. This text is particularized. We can't just strip it out and apply it whichever whichever way we wish. Rather, Jesus sends the apostles, if we're going to handle this text with integrity, only to the villages of Palestine among the Jewish people, which is in great contrast to taking the Gospels to the ends of the earth, which we see after his ascension, as I said to you, unfolding in the book of Acts. Finally, just by way of introduction, finally, Consider how Jesus, as if, as if that, this text alone, if we were to look at it, as if the evidence within the text itself is not sufficient, consider as we move forward in the Gospel of Luke itself, Jesus later tells these same apostles to do most, almost everything opposite of what he says here. Luke 22, 35 through 38, I simply read, you don't need to turn there. But again, he says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Again, at this point in time, Luke 22, looking back on what? When did he do that? When did he send you out with no money, no knapsack or sandals? Jesus referring clearly to this event, to this text. Did you lack anything? And they said, of course. They said, nothing. He said to them, but now, marking that important shift in redemptive history, marking that important shift in missionary enterprise, remember when, but now, Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So again, the instructions given here to the apostles are not to be confused with the church's current missionary enterprise in the Great Commission. So we must be careful in handling this text. Let's just say this is the mark of Jesus. This is how we ought to be living. This is how the church should be serving. This is how our missionaries should be behaving. This is how our budget should not reflect missionary enterprise. Let the missionaries live by faith. But rather recognize, no, no, no. This is a particularized text for a particularized time in a particularized place to a particularized group of men. Now, lest I cut my own nose off despite my face, have I so restricted and particularized this text then that it has nothing for us this morning? If it indeed is so particularized, then what are we to gain from it? What do we learn? In fact, not only do we study and learn, but what can we receive and rest upon? 
Well, I have two transcendent truths. That is, that this text indeed is greatly particularized, but there are two foundational truths that transcend not only this particularized event, but all of the missionary enterprise of the church. Or transcend not just this text, but all of history, so that indeed we can reap benefits in two ways from this text this morning. And as I said to you, perhaps a few more benefits next week. We'll see. But for now, let me suggest number one. Out of two transcendent truths, number one, Jesus is the source of effective gospel ministry. That we see rather, it's particularized to these men, particularized to this time, particularized to this place. What is transcendent about it? Whether wherever we are on the scale of redemptive history, what is the transcendent truth of this text? And that is that Jesus is the source of effective gospel ministry. Look how we get there. Look in verse 1 and 2 just briefly. And verse 1 of chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Notice very clearly that the entire activity of that text belongs to Jesus. The entire endeavor, the entire activity. If you look closely, look at what he has done. In verse 1, he called. He gave. Verse 2, he sent. And then we'll look at the content in just a moment. But you see, every bit of the entire activity of missionary or gospel ministry is the initiative and power of the Lord. Jesus is the cause of effectual gospel ministry. Now, whether we're talking about missionary enterprise, or we're talking about pulpit ministry, or we're talking about small group Bible study, or we're talking about one-on-one evangelistic efforts, we're talking about mercy ministries, whatever we're talking about in a ministerial context, the effectual power between you and the individual you're encouraging or the individual you're ministering to or the individual you're proclaiming to, the effectual power resides still in the one singular source, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who calls, he is the one who gifts, and he is the one who sends. He is the cause of effectual gospel ministry. In other words, if we contextualize it to the apostles, if they were going out into this particularized ministry, into the villages of Palestine among the Jewish people, and if they were going to have any success whatsoever, if they were going to have success over the demons, if they were going to have success to heal people in their infirmities and disease, if they were even going to have a heart of compassion toward their neighbor... It was going to be because Jesus had empowered them and Jesus had sent them. In some, we would say it something like this. They ministered in His name, not their own. That's the effectual power of ministry. 
again, whether it's on, in pulpit work, whether it's on one-on-one relationships, whether it's in threads of mercy ministry, whether it's within your family. As Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, who is Lord. That's where the effectual power resides. That's where power and transformation come from. And if the apostles were to have any of that experience in their own ministry, in the Jewish ministry of Palestine, it would be for that very reason. They preached him and not themselves. They pointed people's faith to its truest object. They ministered in his name. But this adds an important facet to what Luke has been building on since the beginning of 8 with the miracles and so forth. Well, even earlier than that. But this text is still leading you, as I said last week, you notice that there's kind of like um, where we began in chapter 8 last week with um, verse 25 where he said, where is your faith? And then he gives you these miracles in chapter 8, demonstrations of power, and it's leading you from where is your faith over to chapter 9, where we see in verse 20, then he said, but who do you say that I am? And afterward, Peter answered, the Christ of God. So again, this text is still wanting you, the reader, the listener this morning, to ask yourself, in light of his commissioning of the apostles, looking at this text, listener, looking at this text, reader, Who do you say that I am? In other words, you sit back and you see he commissions these men. He calls them. He empowers them. He sends them. And then it's as if Luke is looking over to you and say, and in light of that power, in light of that work, who do you say that he is? You've read the miracle works the demon-possessed man, the wave-tossed sea, the reviving of the dead young girl who was 12 years old. You read of that, and now you're seeing this Jesus, this same one, stand and commission these men and empower them and send them. Who do you think this is? So it begins to shape our answer, or it begins to help us move toward Peter's answer that I just read for you. By consistently showing you his authority and his compassion. You see, it consistently, whether it's miracles or now in missionary enterprise, standing at the center of each is Jesus of Nazareth. Who do you say that he is in light of these things? Your answer is to start being shaped as, well, I know he is a man of authority. He has displayed as such. He has authority over the demonic elements. He has authority over the natural elements. He has authority over death and disease. I'm beginning to answer the question with, he is a man of authority. And yet, it isn't strictly authority and sovereignty and power, but it is also a glimpse into his compassion. He wants to heal people. He's shown it time and time again, Luke. His heart is to heal and to help. He is full of compassion and mercy as he looks upon the affirmities of man. 
I'm beginning to have my answer shaped by authority and compassion. So I say to you, the listener this morning, Redeemer family, as you begin to formulate your answer, as I trust you are now formulating, as the biblical text is asking you, who do you say that I am? Adam, where you are in life, who do you say that I am? Do you see? The answer will cost you. It isn't answer for answer's sake. Why could biblically define you? No, 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 I, I, I sure. But who do you say that I am? So far in the biblical text, we can see, indeed, you have authority. And indeed, your authority is that of a king. You reign. I see it. In the text, you reign over death and disease. Your compassion leads me to see and describe you as is declared by Matthew. You are a savior. You alleviate human suffering spiritually and physically. You are a king and a savior. Now, I said, in this text we see certainly that Jesus is the source of effectual gospel ministry. If we're going to see lives transformed in any sector of ministry, the broad umbrella of Christian living, it'll be because we're pointing people to, speaking of, and displaying the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to be clear, Jesus as the source of ministry isn't anything new either. It isn't like here in Mark 9 we realize that the power resides in Christ and He is compassionate and healing and powerful as a king and loving as a savior and deliverer. We don't learn that for the first time in in, in Luke 9. Alec Moitier, an Old Testament British scholar, was once asked the question, regarding the relationship between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, properly speaking. He was asked, what is the relationship of our one shared faith? What, how do we see the continuity and the consistency of the biblical story that Christ is Lord? He says, well, imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to someone who asked for it, they would have said something like this. Quote, we were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, he came to us with the promises of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God. We took shelter under the blood of the Lamb as He led us out. Now we are on the way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we have His presence in our midst. So He will stay with us until we get to our true country our everlasting home, end quote. 
Dr. Moyer concludes, now I think, now think about that. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word. Consider that not only is Jesus, has He always been, will He forever be the source of effectual gospel ministry? Not only was He the King, was He a compassionate Savior, but He always will be a King and a compassionate Savior. Consider He is also the content of effectual gospel ministry. That is number two. Jesus is the content of effectual gospel ministry. Not only is it source, that, that He animates it, that He gives it its life, that He is its transforming power, but He is also its content. How do we see that? Look as He instructs the apostles very clearly at this point, which transcends this particularized time, this particularized work. Notice verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jump down to verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So quickly, if you go back in your mind to, cha- to verse 2, proclaim the kingdom and heal. They went preaching the gospel and healing. Again, Jesus is the content. Consider the similarities between preaching the kingdom of God, as you see in verse 2. This is what you're to do. He called them, he gave them, and he sent them. Preach the kingdom. And Luke tells us they preached the gospel. So, consider the similarity between the preaching of the kingdom and the preaching of the gospel. They are essentially and fundamentally the same message. What is the message? What is its essential quality? What is its content? If in all walks of life, we the people of God, doing broad-scale ministry, some on -on one-on-one level, some in mercy efforts and mercy ministries, some in public proclamation, some in private discipleship, some within family, some within a web of relationships, sometimes at the workplace, sometimes just straight with your own children, what is the effectual nature of that proclamation? What is its contents that will bring about transformation? The proclamation that Jesus Christ is king. That's the essential message of the gospel. That's the good news announcement. That's why Luke can repeat right within the same text, he told us to preach the kingdom. We went and preached the gospel. In other words, we preached Christ is king. You recall how Gabriel made this announcement to Mary several months ago when we were in the early portions of the book of Luke where Gabriel appeared to tell Mary before she was pregnant. Gabriel said this, quote, You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, that is the content of the gospel. It proclaims in every way we can that Jesus is king. Finally, notice the implication. As I said to you, each and every text, every time we gather for Lord's Day, there is an implication. There is a consequence for our listening. When the gospel goes forward, when the table is presented, when we gaze upon a baptism, there is a consequence. It's never neutral. We can't simply sterilely watch it from afar. There is upon you, the listener, there is upon you, the reader, there is upon you in the gaze a consequence for you. A response is required. So if he is the source of effectual ministry, it is his name that we proclaim. He is the content. It is simply him that we express and point to. What are the implications for such an announcement to hear Jesus is king? We'll look at verse 5 for just a moment. And wherever they do not receive you, Well, I'll just jump back to three real quickly and just read the whole text. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Verse 5, I want to draw your attention to, for the implications for such a proclamation as verse 2, the kingdom of God and the display of the kingdom's power to heal and to nourish, to show compassion and mercy. And when that is on display, verse 5, wherever they do not receive you, when, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Historically speaking, I do want to draw your attention to the particularized aspect of I don't think anybody's encouraged a missionary to do that. I might not know. Maybe they have. Because again, they selectively choose to send the missionaries out without support. So maybe they do recommend dusting off their feet as well. I haven't heard that instruction before. I think most people draw back somewhere between verses 3 and 4 maybe. But if we were to look at this one, historically speaking, what is taking place here? Well, the shaking off of the dust of a city was particularly of a Jewish endeavor when they went into a Gentile city. So it's kind of, it's a Jew and Gentile aspect here to the text. Now remember, the missionary enterprise, however, here with the apostle is to go where? To Jewish villages. Now think historically about what this dusting off of your feet meant. It meant Jewish individuals dusting their feet off after having gone to a Gentile city. Do you see what's taking place here? Now that the apostles are going to Jewish neighborhoods and they are ceremoniously cleansing their feet. 
Again, the shaking off of the dust of a Gentile city from one's feet was practiced by Jews. They would remove what was ceremoniously unclean before returning to their own land, lest they should defile their land with Gentile filth. Thus, the practice implied that the place in question was heathen and that the Jew had no fellowship with it. Again, thus the practice implied the place in question was heathen and the Jew had no fellowship with it. Here our Lord suggests the activity, in fact commands the activity, to the apostles. So what Jesus here instructs the apostles to do was a symbolic piece of evidence against the Jews. What does the symbolism imply? They go and they preach the kingdom of God. They heal and demonstrate its compassion, its mercy, and its power. They went through the villages preaching the gospel. Jesus is king in healing everywhere and showing his compassion, his mercy, and his power. And then when they left and they were rejected, they dusted off their feet. Do you see the redemptive shift in the people of God? Here the apostles are to display a symbolic gesture that stands as evidence against the Jews that they were no part of the true Israel of God. How can he say that? How, how, can, how, how can that be such a strong indictment against Israel? That you are not the true people of God. Well, it's evidenced in the content of the ministry. They rejected the pronouncement of the true king and membership in the true kingdom. Again, to draw out its broader context for us. What does this mean for each and every one of us? Well, quite straightforward as we have seen, Jesus remains the source of effective gospel ministry. It was him in the Exodus. It was him in the wanderings. It was him in the prophets. It was him in the exile. It was him in the going home. It's him in his birth. And it'll be his message after ascension through the book of Acts until he returns. He always has been since Adam and his offspring. All the way until the culmination of the age. He always has been, always will be the source of effectual gospel ministry. And also with it, he will be the effective content of the ministry. If there is to be meaningful ministry had. What do we proclaim each Lord's Day? What do we proclaim in mercy ministry? What do we proclaim in one-on-one discipleship? How do we nourish and help and shape our children? By saying what? By speaking of Christ to them. And then finally, if indeed Jesus remains the source and the content of effectual gospel ministry, the members of his kingdom remain the same also. This is where I hope to challenge you just in the last moments. If this text 
these truths are evident, that he is the source and the content of ministry, and that the word to the apostles is to dust their feet off because these people who don't receive the gospel are not members of the kingdom of the gospel. Then what can we apply this morning? But that the kingdom citizens are they who submit to the power and person of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Who are the people of God? They are those who submit to His power through a faith which receives and rests upon Him as He is freely offered to you in the gospel. That's who the people of God are. That's who the citizens of the kingdom are. That is those who claim Jesus as their king. They are those who submit to his power. How do you submit this morning to the power of Christ? Through exercising faith which receives and rests upon him as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. What does the ongoing life of a saint look like or a kingdom citizen look like? It looks like one who honors and serves their king each and every day. That's the transcendence of the text. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text that we have to consider you as our king in Christ our Lord. The provisions of the kingdom that we receive as citizens through faith I pray that you will strengthen each and every one of us in our endeavors for ministry, both within our family, outside our family, to our children, to those in the workplace, to those through mercy, to those in our web of relationships. Lord, that we will recall this text, that it is you who are the content, who is the content, and it is you who will empower and give effectual ministry. Lord, if there is some here who are not sharing in you through faith. Lord, I pray that you would use this text to call them, to place their faith, to rest it upon you through grace alone. In Christ's name alone we pray, amen.